Now we're going to turn our attention to the word of our Lord. And um, if you're newer, we are going through a nice slow walk through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We're a few months in. I think we have a little ways to go, and it's been wonderful. So today we're going to be in Luke 11, verse 14 through 28. So if you want to follow along, you can turn to Luke 11, 14 through 28. As you're turning there, last week, Pastor John um, preached on the Lord's Prayer. And we sat at Jesus' feet. He taught us how to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in today's passage, Jesus is going to show us what it looks like when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. And there's going to be a clash of kingdoms. So here, the word of God from Luke eleven fourteen through 28. Now, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon came out, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He drives demons out by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And others, as a test, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I drive out demons by Beelzebul. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overtakes him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and divides up his plunder. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest. And not finding rest, it then says, I'll go back to my house where I came from. Returning, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. As he was saying these things, a woman from the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you, Jesus said. Rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's help. Our Father in heaven, would you bless this time, bless the reading of your word to us, preaching of your word. Bless us and protect us. Make your face shine on us and be gracious to us. Look with favor on us and give us peace. All because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. On April 11th, 1945, there was a 14-year-old Jewish boy named Robert Weissman. And on that day, April 11th, he stepped out of Block 8 at the concentration camp in Buchenwald. The camp had been abandoned For a couple days earlier, by some defeated Nazi guards, they knew the war was over soon. But there had still been bombing. And on April 11th, about 10 till 4, the bombing stopped. And timid little Robert stepped out of his block 8 and started heading towards the gate. And he was fearful that on the other side of the gate, he would encounter 
Nazi soldiers. And as Robert Weissman, this 14-year-old Jewish boy, steps out towards the gate, he sees the first black man he's ever seen in his life. This black man was an American soldier, about 20 years old, and his name was Leon Bass. This is what Bass later said when he reflected on this. This American soldier said, I was totally unprepared for that kind of experience. I can never forget that day. When I walked through that gate, I saw in front of me what I can only call the walking dead. I saw human beings, human beings who had been beaten, starved, and tortured. They'd been denied everything, everything that would make anyone's life livable. There they were standing in front of me, and they were skin and bone. Robert remembers back all those years when he was a little boy, 14, that the American soldiers invaded the camp, liberated hundreds of these people in the concentration camp. One of them turned to Robert and said, boy, what's your name? Robert said, I blurted out, 117098, my number given to me. My name as a human being erased. I was a number. So Leon Bass liberated this boy, Robert, from Buchenwald in 1945 from his Nazi captors. And in today's text, we're going to see in Luke 11 that this is what Jesus does. He goes to the doorstep of Satan's kingdom and he liberates us from his tyrannical reign. And the big idea of today's passage is King Jesus rescues us from Satan and he restores us with his rule. Our good King Jesus rescues us from Satan and he restores us with his rule. And as we go through the sermon, we're going to see a clash of kingdoms. We'll consider Satan and his armory, the attack of Jesus, and the restoring reign of King Jesus. So let's get right into it at verse 14. Verse 14, there's a clash of kingdoms. So in verse 14, Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples how to pray. Now he gets up and he sees this demon-possessed man and he drives out a demon that was mute. This demon, however he was doing it, was making the man he was possessing mute. He could not talk. And then the crowds react and then Jesus responds to them. So that's kind of the big picture of what's going on. And the big question is, where did Jesus get his power to cast out demons? All right, let's back out a little bit, big picture. Um, The act of driving out demons, pushing away demons, is part of a much bigger story that starts all the way in Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1 and 2, God, our good creator, our father, he made all things. And seven times he says, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. He ends up making humans, man and woman in his image. And he says, very good, when it's all together. But in Genesis 3... This figure comes along, a snake, Satan, and he rebels against God, and he introduces bad and evil. And what Jesus does, when Jesus comes to earth, he is undoing the work of Satan. 1 John 3, 8 says, Jesus came, the Son of Man appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And so what Jesus is doing, he's bringing that good kingdom of God and pushing back the evil kingdom of Satan, and he's advancing God's kingdom. And in that, we'll see that there is a clash of kingdoms between Christ and Satan. Now, I I know what some of you are thinking. Maybe you sat down, sermon on demons. You're thinking, how medieval? This is the 21st century. We live in a materialistic world. We know a lot more about science, 
Are you kidding me, demons? Or maybe you are a committed Christian. You're committed to the scriptures. You believe what Jesus says, and you believe that there's demons and spiritual beings around. But when you get around sophisticated company, you know, at your wine and cheese night, you are definitely not mentioning this part of your faith. Well, here are a few reasons that we should be convinced that there are demonic spirits that are against us and our good. First, one of the best reasons, the best reason, Jesus taught about demons and he encountered demons in his ministry. Over and over again, scripture teaches us that there's evil spirits that are out against all of humanity. Another reason you should maybe open up to the idea that there are evil spiritual beings are experience. There are many people globally, I would say the majority of South America, Africa, Asia, many parts of the country, that demons are a regular part of everyday life. Maybe some of you have had experiences. But I want to kind of calibrate how we think about demons because I think most of us get our demonology from Hollywood and not from the scriptures. So we hear demon, we think all that spooky stuff, you know. Uh, But while demons can possess and attack and scare, what scripture gives us is demons partake in everyday mundane type of stuff and battle against us. Let me give you a little sample from scripture on what ways demons scheme against us. Demons fuel bitterness. Have you ever had bitterness towards someone else and unforgiveness? Demons fuel envy, James 3, 14. Have you ever looked at a really good friend and what they had and felt envy towards them? Demons fuel selfish ambition. They fuel false teaching about who Jesus is and his good news. They even, for some people, they forbid enjoyment of God's good gifts. 1 Timothy 4, that is the doctrine of demons. You can't eat those foods, or you probably shouldn't get married and have sex because those created things are evil. Those are the teaching of demons. And sometimes they attack us with illness. Now, there's not a demon behind every sneeze, especially as we get to October and November, you know. (laughs) We don't want to be casting people out just because they sneeze. But... Over and over in scripture, we see that demons can afflict physical harm. We see this with Paul, the apostle, in 2 Corinthians, where he's boasting in his weakness, and he's saying, Satan gave me this thorn in my flesh. We don't know exactly what that is, but as we look at the passage, it most likely was a physical ailment. So whether demons are openly or subtly attacking you, they serve Satan in this purpose. They want to distort truth to lies, They want to mar what's beautiful and make it ugly. And they want to take what is created good, which is you, and turn it evil. And Jesus makes war on demons and Satan. But that's not how everybody saw it. So Jesus heals this man, this mute man. Finally, he can start talking. And the crowd is amazed. And there's two main reactions to this exorcism. First, there's hostility. There's a whole group of people in verse 15. Some of them said, he drives out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So there's this whole group of people. Maybe they're envious. We don't exactly know the reason of their hostility, but they're saying, yeah, he's, he's casting out demons, but he's doing it in Satan's strength. And then there's a whole other group in verse 16, and it says, 
as a test, they were demanding of Jesus a sign from heaven. Like it says elsewhere in scripture, these people are always learning, but they're never able to arrive at the truth. They want it, they're standing back. And they're not learning from Jesus, but they're judging his ministry and saying, let me see more. Let me see more before I believe. Let me see more. So what our passage deals with is that main accusation. Jesus, you are casting out demons in Satan's power. And then next week, as Pastor Don preaches, continues in Luke, Jesus is going to deal with those people who are hungry for signs, always learning, but never arrive at the truth. So for that first group of people, they're saying Jesus is not spirit-empowered, he's demon-empowered. And there's irony here, because these people are blinded by Satan to the beauty of Jesus. That is one of the main things that Satan does for us. 1 Corinthians 4. He blinds us to our need for Jesus and Jesus' willingness to help us, his beauty, his goodness. And Jesus responds to their accusation. First he says, okay, let's just talk logic. If you have a kingdom that is shooting at each other, they're not going to stand. Let me make a guarantee, church. The Pats, their O-line, If they turn around and they sack their own quarterback every down, the Pats will not lose. I mean, the Pats will not win. They will not win. Guarantee. So Jesus is saying, okay, that's stupid. Your logic is flawed. If Satan was casting out his own servants, he would tear down his own kingdom. And then he goes on. He says, who do your sons cast out demons by? So during this time, there were Jewish exorcists who would go around and cast demons out of people. And also his disciples, mostly Jews, were uh, casting out demons as well. And he's saying, okay, so if I cast out demons by Satan, your boy who just did that the last week, he's, he's empowered by Satan too? No. Jesus goes on in verse 20 to say, there's only one explanation for what is going on as I cast out demons. Let's look at verse 20. If I drive out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, if I drive out demons, not by Satan, I just proved I don't do it by Satan, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is a phrase that's not used much throughout scripture, about four times the finger of God. But the first time we see it is in Exodus 8, when God sees his people in slavery in Egypt, and he's about to take them out of slavery. And so he sends plagues. He's judging the Egyptian gods. He's saying, you think your gods are going to protect you? I'm going to liberate my people from slavery. And over and over again, Pharaoh, who was the ruler in Egypt, he would call in his cultish sorcerers, and they were trying to mimic God's plagues. And they did it for the first couple. And then God sent a plague of gnats, you know, those tiny flies that bother us. They covered all of Egypt. Pharaoh called in his occult sorcerers, and he says, okay, do that. They try, they try, they try, and they can't do it. And this is what the magicians said to Pharaoh. Magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. The gnats remained on people and animals. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And so these people who didn't follow Yahweh, they recognized God is among us. We can't reproduce this. This is something much more powerful than we are. And what Jesus is saying is, I am bringing a new liberation, a new exodus, not from slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to Satan. And the kingdom of God is coming to bring you out and to restore you in my presence. 
So, there is a clash of kingdoms, and the king has arrived. Now what Jesus does, this is my favorite part of the passage, uh, in verse 21 and 22, he gives us a little parable, a mini story of what he's actually doing. He said, okay, your interpretation of what I'm doing is wrong. Here's the actual interpretation of what I'm doing when I'm casting out demons. And so he gives us a little story in verse 21 and 22. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his estate, his possessions are secure. But when one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him, he takes from him all his weapons he trusted in and gives up his plunder. So here, we see in verse 21, Satan described as a strong man. So let's turn to Satan's armed guard. Notice that he calls Satan strong. That is true. Satan is older than you, he's stronger than you, and he's more crafty than you. You can't overpower him. You can't outsmart him on your own. And he has tried and true weapons. He's had ages and ages and ages to sharpen his weapons and cultivate his craft. Here are three weapons in Satan's arsenal. First, lies. He lies to us about ourself. He lies to us about God. He lies to us about others. Second, accusation. In Revelation, Satan is called the accuser of the brothers and sisters. He's the accuser of the church. And finally, lures. If he can't get you with his lies or threatening, he will try to lure you in with bait, temptation, saying maybe you should go this way, maybe you should leave your spouse, maybe you should do this and that and that. And so Satan has this armory lies, accusation, lures. Now you might be wondering at this point, this is a pretty common question in Christian circles. Can Christians be demon-possessed? Short answer, no. Next point. No, but before we do that. That's a a good question. Can Christians be demon-possessed? Nowhere in the New Testament do we see a Christian who is believing in Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, possessed by a demon. As one pastor put it, uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't do roommates. This is a good question, but it's short-sighted, because this is what it does. We say, hey, uh, so, okay, can I be possessed as a Christian? No? Okay, good. And then it gives us a false sense of ease. While Christians can't be possessed, they can be lied to. They could start to believe those lies. They could be accused, start to believe those accusations. And they could be lured by the enemy, thinking that, no, Jesus isn't better this week. Jesus isn't better tonight. I'm going to make this choice. I wonder, as you're sitting there, what weapons does he use most on you? Does he work lies about self? Do you wake up in the morning and say, I'm worthless. This world would be better without me. Does he lie to you about God? you're too dirty for God. He doesn't love you. Does he lie about others, even your friends, your parents? Your siblings, they don't care about you. Maybe it's intense temptation. He says, okay, when you pass by that room or pass by that website, just stop. It'll be better. Maybe maybe it's crippling fear. Maybe you don't have a good shepherd and you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death alone and there's no meaning to your suffering and it's a chaotic universe. What weapons does Satan use on you 
time and time again. I know what he uses on me. I know what it's like to have the accuser's voice in my head. I know what it's like to hate myself and to have darkness so heavy that it feels like a physical weight. I know what it's like to be so depressed I can't even pray. I know the feeling of helplessness when I've fallen in the same sin over and over and over again and wake up the next morning and have no hope and say, okay, when this temptation comes, I'm going to fall. But church, I also know the power of a God who will fight for me. I also know the strong love of Jesus who comes to me in my time of need. Jesus has saved me over and over and over again from dark thoughts and dark times. He has forgiven me every single sunrise with new morning mercies. He greets me with a smile and open arms. In whatever you're facing, whatever weapons he uses against you time and time again, do you have hope anymore? Or have you totally bought into his lies? Do you resist temptation anymore? Or you've given up hope of change? Well, there is good news for those who have been attacked, abused, and trapped by the enemy. This is how Isaiah 49 puts it. This is God speaking to his people. Can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant be delivered? For this is what the Lord says. Even the captives of a mighty man will be taken and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your children. Then all humanity will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And so in verses 22 and 23, my favorite verses in this passage, we see that Jesus goes on the offensive. Jesus attacks Satan. So let's turn there. So earlier we saw that our enemy is strong. But this little story that Jesus taught us in verse 22, he says, When one stronger than he attacks and overpowers him. Satan is strong, but there is one stronger than him. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God from all eternity. No one created the Son of God. He's always existed with the Father and the Spirit in the Trinity. Satan is a created being. Jesus is in control of all things. Satan is on his leash. Jesus has the power to create with beauty and with love. Satan can't create anything. He could only distort what God has made. And this stronger one, the stronger Jesus, he contends with our enemies. He fights for us. And it says that he disarms Satan. Think about it. In the Gospels, we see that Satan tries his weapons on Jesus. He tries to lure Jesus in the wilderness with power, with trusting in himself and not in God. And Jesus threw that weapon aside. He resisted temptation for us. Satan tried to take uh, Jesus out with death. For a couple nights there, he was rejoicing. But Jesus got up from the grave and even defeated death, Satan's last weapon. And so here's what we have to know, church. Satan knows he can't beat Jesus. He's not that dumb. He knows God is in the room when Jesus is near. 
He knows the Son of God can destroy him and will destroy him at the end of the times. But instead of attacking him, the undefeated one, he attacks his church. He attacks Jesus' people. So if he can't get after our king, he will try to get after his people. Like I said earlier, in Revelation, he's called the accuser of the saints. That's what Satan means. He's the accuser. He could accuse us for our sins that we've done last night, last week, 10, 20 years ago. But Jesus arms us. He doesn't leave us defenseless. We could pull up Colossians 2. This is what Jesus has done for us in protecting us from Satan. And when you, church, were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So Satan, over and over and over again, he's going to take a receipt. Mentally, he's going to take a receipt with you and go over all your failures this week. All the ways you didn't love God or love neighbor. That big sin in the past that's still in the closet you don't want to confess to anyone. You don't even want to confess to God. And he's going to hold that up to you and say, you're condemned. You're damned. You deserve hell. God won't receive you. God doesn't love you. He knows more sins than I do. But what this passage says is, Jesus took that receipt of sins, passed present, and future, and he nailed it to the cross through his wrist. He took all the punishment for your sins on himself. He's forgiven it. He's erased the debt. And so you could point back to that receipt and say, I know I'm a sinner, but check out the receipt, Satan. It's empty. It's paid for. I don't have to pay for those sins. Who can condemn you if God has forgiven you? There is no condemnation in Christ. If you want to experience that freedom and haven't trusted in Jesus yet to have your record of sins, your receipt of sins taken away, look to him today and just ask him. He'll be more than happy to forgive and free you. Now I know in previous generations and even some places there's still a want on things like that, but you know, Bible memory had its heyday. We've got to revive that a little bit. But one of the really useful things about Bible memory is you can memorize a particular promise to meet and battle a particular lie of the enemy. So if you're talking to a friend and you realize, your friend might realize like, hey, you struggle with that a lot. Like over and over and over again, you struggle with that a lot. Maybe you could find a promise in scripture that relates to that lie. Because when he attacks you, he loves to, he loves to have debate. Satan loves to have debate and twist scripture. But if you have a solid hold on the scriptures, the word of God, you'll be ready to defend yourself. Now, just because you've been rescued from an abusive situation, everything isn't all rosy. Uh, you think about the people who were taken out of Buchenwald, the hundreds of people who had been emaciated, starved, beaten, uh, the rest of their life they were dealing with the trauma they had received. Maybe therapy, maybe healthy community, healthy relationships, learning to rest, all these things. 
And the same is true for us. Even if you've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, there is still a lot of healing that needs to happen. Even if you're a former addict of one thing or another, like myself, there's still a lot of healing that needs to happen. And so what we see is Jesus delivers us, rescues us from the kingdom of Satan, and then he begins to restore us under his good rule. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 puts it like this. God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So God takes us from darkness, brings us to light. He takes us from hate, brings us to love. And in that kingdom of light and love, we begin to be healed and walk in the kingdom of God. So let's look at verses 24 through the rest of the chapter, or rest of the section, 24 through 28. So Jesus continues to teach after his little story, and he says, if an unclean spirit comes out of someone... It's going to roam waterless places. Kind of in the Old Testament, it's talking about that's where the scapegoat goes. That's where demons were viewed to be at. It would roam waterless places looking for a place to rest. And if it doesn't find a place, it's going to come back to the place it originally was. And if it finds it empty and clean, it's going to bring more demons with it. This is a confusing passage. It's hard to understand. But what I think Jesus is saying here is... This is a critique on the Jewish exorcists of his day. There were many people who didn't follow Jesus but were still casting out demons. And he was saying to these exorcists, if you cast a demon out of someone, but they're not in relationship with me, the king, in my kingdom, they're just open to other demons, other temptations, other lies. In a little bit, we'll see he places a lot of emphasis on keeping the word of God. But it's true for us. Maybe if you've been delivered from an addiction or a particular sin you're struggling with or an abusive situation or whatever that was evil and dark, but you don't carry on in a life of discipleship with Jesus, you're not feeding on his word, you don't receive him by faith and receive his Holy Spirit, you're still opening yourself up to all sorts of evil influences. And there's a woman in the crowd hearing all this. And she kind of just shouts out. She's a bold woman. I, you know, if a crowd gets a certain size, you won't catch me talking. But there's this huge crowd, demon pushed out, all these things. And she's like, blessed is the womb that bore you and the one who nursed you. I don't know why she said that at this point. Maybe she's marveling at Jesus and saying, you're so amazing. You're so beautiful. Maybe it's a version of like, your mom must be proud of you, Jesus. She raised a real good boy. Pushing out those demons in, Jesus, you know, in the Father's name. Maybe she's on that. I don't know. She has genuine amazement. But Jesus humbly just redirects her blessing. Saying, yes, Mary is blessed. You know, <laughs> to carry the Son of God in your womb. That is a blessing. That is beautiful. But he redirects the blessing and he says, rather, blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. One of the many reasons why Mary was blessed was because when the angel came to her and says, you're going to carry the Son of God, the Son of David, the Savior of Israel, the Gospels tell us that Mary believed God. She trusted in his word. And so what Jesus is saying is true blessing, that's another word for happiness or joy, true joy comes in 
obeying the word of God, hearing the word of God and obeying it, keeping it. Now, for some of you, that might feel like a letdown or a bummer, especially if you grew up in more uh, legalistic church settings or contexts, where it's always obey, 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 but very little grace. You're kind of like, wait, this is life in the kingdom? Just hear God's word and obey it? That word, even obey, might sound cold to you, might feel like a weight. It, remi- it might remind you of a list of things you couldn't do when you are growing up, growing up. Jesus flips that on his head. He says, true joy, happiness in the kingdom comes from hearing the word and living it out. Let's think about the word of God that has just come through Jesus. Jesus has just taught about three things leading up to this passage. He talks about being a good neighbor, seeing someone in need, feeling compassion, and loving them. He talks about sitting at the feet of Jesus, valuing being with Jesus over doing for Jesus. Saying, you know, I'm, I'm created in your image, Father, to be with you, to sit at Jesus' feet. And then he goes to teach us about prayer. Having close, intimate conversation with our Father in heaven. He's saying, if you live out that word, if you work under that restorative law, you will be blessed and happy. It's not... Obey so you could get into the kingdom. Obey so you could stay in the kingdom because you don't. You, if you stop obeying, God will stop loving you. But it's the way to find restoration is not to hear the voice of the liar anymore, but to hear the voice of the Lord, the one who made you, knows you, and loves you. So what Jesus is doing here is he took us out of a kingdom of lies, and he's saying, you've been saturated with lies for too long. Hear my Father's word. Let it breathe clarity and light into your mind. And as we learn to love our neighbor as ourself, as we learn to love God in prayer, as we learn to love Jesus and say that he's better than anything, we will be restored as humans and become healed and enter and live in the kingdom of God with him. In 1983... This was 38 years after the liberation of Buchenwald. Robert, that 14-year-old boy, he recognized, he's flipping through a magazine, and he recognized Leon Bass, that black soldier from America who liberated him. And so he connected with him, and they became friends. And they even did tours at schools and churches talking about the liberation of Buchenwald. And then Bass would talk about the continued fight for liberation for black people in the United States. And they would go tour around. They had a great relationship. And at one point, Robert, the Jewish man, looked to Leon and he said, You are my Messiah. You are, that day, you are my Messiah. You saved me. Robert had a deep honor and love for his liberator. And Jesus' liberation fills us with love and honor for him. And we have the joy of spending all our days with him as he delivers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son.